subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here wishing you a very happy new year with a remotely recorded Truth and Movies special. A very special one, in fact, uh, this time because this is the first time I think we've had all three of the core members of the editorial team of Little White Lies on the same podcast with me. So let me welcome David Jenkins, head honcho. Hey. Adam Woodward. Hey. And Hannah Woodhead. Hi. Happy New Year, everyone. Let's hope that 2021 is packed with great movies for all of us. We wanted to start the year with a very special episode in a similar vein to one we did at the back end of December, celebrating a filmmaker. And actually, the filmmaker in question almost rhymes with the filmmaker we spoke about last time. Last time we spoke about David Fincher. And this episode, because of his 75th birthday, we're going to be talking about David Lynch. Uh, a filmmaker maybe some of our listeners may have heard of and seen films by or TV series by over the years. I suppose we're going to do what we did with David Fincher. We've all come with one film each that we'd like to talk about. But first of all, let's get acquainted. Uh, Let's talk about our first taste of David Lynch and maybe our general feelings about him and his films. So I'll go first. I'm very much of the generation where so many cultural touchstones were introduced to me by parodies on The Simpsons. And I very clearly remember two of the Twin Peaks parodies that appeared on The Simpsons during their golden era, particularly the bit where Homer Simpson is up late watching Twin Peaks and there's a lady dancing backwards with a horse and he says, brilliant, I have no idea what's going on, uh, which is certainly one uh, uh, overarching, uh, unifying uh, take on David Lynch, maybe. But then I see David Lynch almost in a similar vein to Tim Burton and Quentin Tarantino for sort of a young teenage wannabe film fan there because they are um, they almost present an entire film school within their own filmography. So you hit a certain age and you want to be sort of slightly challenged and weirded out by uh, elements of art house or artistic or absurdist cinema surreal cinema and that's where you go to david lynch where he's looking beneath the surface of society so i remember very rosy tinted nostalgic memories of going home from school on a friday getting the bus through manchester Hmm. going to the recently opened fop during the golden age of the three or five pound dvd section where all it seemed like all david lynch's films were a fiver at the time and i'd pick up one a week and slowly make my way through his filmography um so that was my introduction today to David Lynch. David, what was yours? Mm, I I think the first time I heard, I, I I don't think I'd heard the name David Lynch for a while, but I think that um, the first the first kind of uh, entry point into his world was probably Eraserhead, um, and uh, which is obviously his his debut. Like, um, and the reason being is because my dad was a massive fan of the film and i think he had been to like you know he'd been to the see at the scala many times which was this kind of under you know underground cinema in king's cross that showed these kind of cult films on print and 
I remember my dad getting very excited by the fact that um, Eraserhead was being released on on video, and that he would be able to rent it from or from our video shop, or even like buy it from like W H Smiths or H M V or something like that. And he and he was sort of very excited by the pro- prospect of being able to like physically own a copy of of Eraserhead. I think he was of that generation where that film was you know super super important in the in what it represented as a kind of complete mad folly debut that is kind of this very distinct artist's vision and works on all these as most of his films do work works on these kind of multiple levels and um i i remember i think i remember like him him being very you know him sort of saying no you can definitely not watch this when i was maybe like you know eight or nine and 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 very much associating this idea of like um this film being kind of forbidden and difficult even though the name Eraserhead was was obviously seemed quite weird and funny to me i remember one time staying up long enough to see the beginning bit where you've got um henry the henry character like walking around in this weird kind of urban desolation like these big piles of rubble and he's sort of like walking in all these weird like it's almost that kind of silent comedy style um and yeah he he he's um i I remember that and, and then just sort of being ushered off after that point because things you know before he arrives at his his girlfriend's house things start to get kind of really strange and and and, and quite sort of sick if i if i recall rightly but yeah that was that was my that was my first take and i didn't really you know he isn't he i must admit that he's someone who i've only really really got into quite recently i've kind of he's a he's a filmmaker mm. who's definitely i've i've watched films not thought very much of them come back to them watch them again like them watch them again gone a bit cool watch them again and love them you know like every every viewing of a film is very very different and brings new things and i think that's what's so great about his his back catalogue and worthy of this discussion yeah absolutely adam what was uh, what was yours well now i think about it the simpsons is a good shout um <laughs> but i have a very very foggy memory as as a child of watching the elephant man with my dad and um i'm not sure whether i watched the whole thing but i i have a very distinct memory i think for years i didn't really know what the film was um it was one of those kind of late night channel 4 reruns and i i vividly remember the opening scene or it's kind of like the weird pre-credit sequence where there's this very surreal moment with the elephants and there's a kind of it's almost like implied that this woman was attacked or or perhaps like sexually assaulted by like a a herd of elephants and i really really distinctly remember that scene and then it would have been i mean it was years later that i eventually saw the film properly but in my mind at the time it was it may as well have been a film from like the 1920s or 1930s or something like it it very much felt like you know uh, watching something that was very very old and very alien and, and exotic to me in that way and then it was not long after that, I actually weirdly um, picked up a copy of Blue Velvet on Laserdisc wow. at a car boot sale, not knowing anything about the film, not knowing who David Lynch was, not being able to play Laserdisc. I mean, this was like well before my, my time in terms of its relevance as a, as a medium. I mean, hence it being you know picked up for probably 50p at a car boot sale, but I remember picking that up and being just like fascinated by the front cover. I think it was like the classic shot of um, a topless Karl McLaughlin holding Isabella Rossellini. And I just remember being really, um, yeah, quite captivated by that image and, and not really knowing much about it. And then I think after that, it was, as with a lot of people, I kind of got into Twin Peaks in college and, you know, would would have like very crude Twin Peaks gifts on my MySpace page back in the day and quote quotes from uh, <laughs> quote quotes from it from the show and things like that and I think actually the first first Lynch film I actually watched in the cinema was probably the one I'm going to be talking about later okay. not at the time it was released some years later but um, 
Yeah, that's that's it's the one I've seen the most and the one I I've I've seen in the cinema the most. It's funny that you mentioned Twin Twin Peaks there because Twin Peaks was always the um the hardest one to get when I was a teenager finding all these films because it was quite a while for it to finally come to the UK you know, region 2 DVD particularly the second season. I remember a friend of mine had like a 360 pixel uh, AVI file of the the pilot episode that we, we used to watch while we were waiting for the DVDs to come out and it's amazing to think all those old folkies talking about VHS and laserdisc and DVDs. Mm-hmm. Well, Hannah. I don't know when I don't know when the first <laughs> sorry, I was going to I don't know when the second season or even the first season came out on DVD, but I do remember it was available around the time I was I was kind of getting into it and starting to watch it because it was definitely not on as far as I know it wasn't really shown on UK television. Yeah, I, I do import at, at, at that time as a as a kind of rerun. Yeah, but enough from the old fogies. Hannah, what was your uh, first taste of Lynch? <laughs> um, I think I was always quite re- resistant to him because um, I saw it very much as like a um, a male kind of like film bro thing, um, which is strange because the way I got into film mostly was through picking up stuff at my local library and um, kind of um, being on social media so the early days of like Tumblr and LiveJournal were the really like where I first um, discovered the world of film and I got into Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino that way but David Lynch somehow didn't kind of I don't know I just didn't I saw it as a much more kind of like um, a gatekept, <laughs> a gatekept thing, um, where it just seemed totally kind of like um, put on this massive pedestal in a way that you know Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino films are as well by a certain type of broy, um, my first film school type of teenager, I guess. Um, so for a long time I was really resistant for that reason and also because my mum was a really big fan of the Elephant Man and I just had this like really enduring memory of like throughout my teenage years when I was getting into films she was just like oh you got to watch the Elephant Man and I was like my mum doesn't know anything about cinema I'm not going to take her recommendations <laughs> so I was really like no I'm not gonna I, I don't have any like interest in this which was a real like um, cutting off my nose to spite my face because when I finally did kind of I think it must have been Twin Peaks that I finally, it was the first thing I watched. I think it was the early days of Netflix, it was kind of one of the first things they had available. And I remember sitting down and watching the whole first season and being like, oh, this is like, this is properly like, very, very good. And I think that was probably my first year of university, so I would have been 18 and this would have been 2011. So um, he'd not kind of made anything for little while by that point about five years so I was um kind of came to him in the the um I don't want to say dead space but the the years between Inland Empire and um the Twin Peaks The Return and then I watched um Blue Velvet I think it's the first film I actually sat down and watched but I'm still like there's still a lot of gaps in my like Lynch knowledge I'm by no means an expert uh, by no means a kind of um devotee but i do i think for me like the thing i really love is lynch himself like i'm just fascinated by the man and all the kind of like mythology around him all the little like weird stories that you find on the internet about him my favorite is the one about him and his woody woodpecker collection (laughs) he um i'm sure that listeners will know this but if they don't there's a wonderful um story which uh, if you search it it's like the first thing that'll come up about him finding (laughs) I think five Woody Woodpecker like soft toys on the side of the road and taking them home and adopting them <laughs> and um, there's a wonderful photo of this but then in the article he's, it says like he says with a grim finality they are not in my life anymore mm. which is just like such a kind of a, a twist that you're not expecting with that story and for me that kind of that weirdness um, but also that humour is what I really um, I think connected with and yeah simpsons uh, references as well is kind of the big way that i think he kind of floated into my consciousness um 
but yeah out of the four of us i think i'm definitely the kind of the 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 newest um person to come to lynch and i'm still like on that journey i've still got things of his i need to watch Mm. i do wonder maybe somebody with a more of a bird's eye view of the last 40 years of cinema could tell us this but i do wonder when that sort of vision of lynch solidified that sort of gate kept film bro this is why you what you've got to watch lynch thing came in because thinking back to when my my, me and my friends growing up we had various ways of getting into him my sci-fi nerd friends loved june um my sort of new metal industrial metal friends loved lost highway because of the trent reznor marilyn manson ramstein connection in that film so there are lots of roots in and he's a very you know you, you try and you know paint a portrait of david lynch and there's so many facets to him he's not just the the, the one thing so maybe we'll come we'll hit upon that when we have our individual picks and the various faces of the man so maybe we should dive into our individual individual picks so we'll go chronologically and i'm going to come straight back to you hannah because yours is the first one what film have you picked um, I've chosen Wild at Heart, which um, I don't know when when we were asked to when this conversation about this podcast came up and we were deciding what films we do. It's just instantly the one that I was like, yeah, that's the one I want to do. There was no kind of like um, real question for me, and I, and and I was thinking last night, I don't really know why I had that instantaneous reaction because I don't think it's one that a lot of people would necessarily gravitate towards but I'm again like one of the great things about Lynch as a filmmaker is I think if you ask anyone who is a fan of his um they'll give you a different answer it's not like there's one film that is um or one uh, show that is considered to be his like defining work I think he would he himself would be quite pleased with that I think that he has always kind of tried to um cast his net as far as can be in terms of genre and themes and uh, yeah I, I was surprised myself by this choice because <laughs> um, reading about it again and watching it again last night I was like this is a real like th- this is a journey <laughs> this film in terms of like the film itself but also um, it the context of it you know the kind of um, where it fits in his filmography and the reaction to it at the time I think it's a really interesting um, part of his um, career and I was thinking last night you know when the the Palm Door it was the second in or the first no it was the first in a three-year streak for the US where David Lynch won the Palm Door and then um, Steven Soderbergh won for I'm going to get the order wrong someone's going to correct me but um Sex Lies and Videotape, and then in 92, I can't remember who won, but it was that kind of, like, mad, bad, dangerous <laughs> uh, male waters phase of US cinema, which I think um, we've not seen for quite some time, maybe, and it got this kind of, you know, kind of weird reaction at Cannes, where it was booed, like, quite famously booed, and um, then... It won the Palm Door, and then it came out in the US, and the reaction to it was very mixed. Um, I think that Roger Ebert was particularly critical of it. Um, it got a lot of like one and a half star reviews, <laughs> and um, it's one of those that's definitely gone undergone a sort of like reevaluation in the past um, twenty years, I guess, since it came out, and the the last year it was. It's 20th anniversary so it had a lot of um you know think pieces saying oh why wild at heart is actually um the best lynch film and yeah i just had this real sort of appreciation being a bit of a a magpie myself and kind of really enjoying um picking and choosing from pop culture i think the um satirical bent of this film is something that really appeals to me it's something that fascinates me that, as a as a Lynch fan for many years, I saw Wild at Heart as the as a footnote as the film he was making when Twin Peaks season two went off the rails, and then he comes back <laughs> afterwards and for the final stretch. But Hannah, I want to know what you think of Laura Dern in this film as the creator of the Laura Dern zine, <laughs> and of course Laura Dern being so important well, to Lynch's films. Yeah, I mean. Um... 
Where do we even begin? I think um, it's a, the, the film that I always like that um, compare this to, and I think that's no kind of shock, is uh, Natural Born Killers. And I think that um, obviously that comes quite a while after um, this film, and I think often gets over Wild at Heart gets overshadowed by the reputation of Natural Born Killers. Um, but if you compare like what um, Juliet Davis is given in that Juliet Lewis, sorry, if you compare what Juliet Lewis is given to do in that film with what Laura Dunn is given to do in Wild at Heart, there's like no comparison to me. She Laura Dunn is kind of the heart of Wild at Heart. <laughs> she's so magnetic in this uh role of lula the kind of um i want to say damsel in distress but i think she really like is so um self-empowered throughout this film i want to say like it's you know she's a character that uh she has an extremely (laughs) domineering mother um and she's a, a, a victim of sexual abuse when she's younger, but never once is she presented as a kind of like, you know, um, submissive character. She's always like this uh, very self-assured, very like kind of uh, self-possessed woman who knows what she wants and is very determined to get it. And um, that I think is, you know, one of um, Lynch's kind of the, one of the things I love most about Lynch is that he really like writes a good female character. He writes an interesting female character. He writes female characters that I like um, care about and you know want to know more about. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about Twin Peaks later. But like Audrey Horn is one of my kind of favorite. Like when I was a teenager, like pinterest like worthy inspiration <laughs> moments and yeah i think that um the same with uh, lula pace fortune i think it's um it's such a kind of iconic lynchian role for me and um i think maybe gets overshadowed a little bit with wild at heart because she's up against nicholas cage which is quite a like a hard like um, a hard thing to do uh, go up against his like kind of manic energy but um yeah i really i i love her in this film i think that first like i'd forgotten how wild the the first like two minutes of this film are um until i rewatched it and i was like literally two minutes in we get (laughs) nicholas cage like beating a man (laughs) to death with his bare hands and she's there like screaming like full body kind of like wailing into the camera another Thing that Lynch really like loves to do is make Laura Dern like scream into the <laughs> camera, um, and yeah, I, uh, I've lost my train of thought there. But yeah, that that first two minutes I think really kind of like sets you up on this like okay, we are in it right from the the word go with this film, which I uh, I I think is really like thrilling to me. <laughs> Hannah, can I ask you? Can I ask you? Sorry, can I ask a very mm. quick question? Just, 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 just to interrupt very quickly. The did you have you ever seen the Wogan interview with Nick Cage? <laughs> where where he no. so I, I'm sure it's on YouTube, but basically, like he comes on to do like Nick Cage is on Terry Wogan to do a to do an interview promoting Wild at Heart, and he basically come does the interview in character as sailor ripley including he he basically <laughs> he walks he walks down the the shiny staircase and, and into the little kind of alcove where the where the seating is and he starts doing like shadow boxing and slam dancing and it's 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 completely mad but it's 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 a it's a very cool i think like i always remember that as something like you, you, you can you can tell that the people who are making the like as they were making the film that and you get it from watching it that everyone was really into it everyone was really invested in in who they were and what what they were doing and why they were doing it wild at heart for me is such a film of moments and they just keep bubbling up into my brain <laughs> as you're talking hannah and particularly the nicholas cage dancing scenes to the whatever speed metal band whatever it is with the, with all the strobe <laughs> lighting uh, that's definitely a, a highlight for me but David, Adam, are you 
big fans of Wild at Heart. Uh, any, any immediate thoughts on that film? Yeah, I think it's like you said, Michael, it's one I sort of came to quite late, I think. Um, maybe not the last of his I watched, but yeah, certainly wasn't wasn't one that was kind of high up on my list. And um, there's, yeah, as you said, it's a re- it really is a film of like the amazing, mo- memorable moments. As as I think, to be fair, a lot of Lynch's work is, and I just think his his the way he sketches and 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 fleshes out characters, obviously with the help of the actors, is just so so amazing. And I think may- maybe this is the film where that really um, comes to the fore, especially with as you said, Laura Dern and, and Cage, but also um, Willem Dafoe's character is, is, just, is just amazing. I mean, what, what, <laughs> what an incredible villain. Bobby Peru. Bobby Peru. Such a good name as well. This is a movie of great names as well, I think like it must be said. Like, I don't know how much credit Lynch gets in general for his naming, but like he has some real, like, some uh, great character names in all his work. And I, I, one, one thing I must say as well about Wilder Heart, I think like it's kind of in the title, but um, it I don't think it really occurred to me until last night when I was rewatching this. But he, Lynch is such a romantic. I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Like um, people talk about how weird his films are and how kind of like you know Lynchian has become this like this word for just meaning weird basically. Um, but he's you know he he really believed in love conquers all, which is like it, it's so nice you know to see to see an author who believes that, and I think. In Wild at Heart, there's this real, like, um, for all the kind of, like, pastiche and violence, like, there's this real, really pure relationship at the centre of it. And it is about, like, a couple who are determined to be together no matter, like, what the odds. And I think the last, like, ten minutes is so kind of... <laughs> um, so I, I genuinely had, like, a, like, oh, no moment <laughs> when it looks like they're not going to end up together. I think it's, like, um, it's it's such a a fun movie but also like yeah there's such, there is such a kind of like pureness to it and a pureness to the central relationship amid all this like gunfire and sexual assault and um assassins trying to kill nicholas cage i think it's a real like it's a love story at the end of the day amazing costumes as well oh well yeah the jacket we haven't even talked about the jacket i i, I, <laughs> I always that's his own pod i think I, I I would say that I I rewatched it fairly recently, and I I I would say it's probably it's probably not the first film that I would reach to to of his of of his to rewatch. I think it's kind of like maybe maybe sort of stretches the the bounds of the kind of wackiness and seriousness to to a kind of Twin Peaks series, season two level at times uh, that that makes it hard to kind of maybe <laughs> for, for me to fully invest in, but. Um, yeah, I, it it is it is probably it's probably the film of his that I if 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 there was like a David Lynch season and I and I was programming it and I and it would and I was like picking the the, the slot for like Friday night at ten o'clock, I'd probably go for like you know, you know Wild Wild at Heart. Actually, probably any of his films would probably work in that slot. But you know, if <laughs> I, I'd probably want to go to see Wild at Heart in that context and you know with a with a with a kind of bunch of rowdy focus cinema so david what's your pick and where in your david lynch program would you program it yeah <laughs> well i think that like so i've i've picked 1992's twin peaks fire walk with me which is just i i i mean there are probably many candidates for his most horrendously troubling film but this is definitely got to be up there, and and I and I I I think I, I think of all these films, or of all his films, I I maybe find, I think a lot of the time I'm dazzled by the form, and and how the sort of ideas are delivered, like films like Mulholland Drive and and, and Inland Empire. I think they kind of, they, I think that you kind of get through them by being kind of dazzled by the visual ideas and motifs. I think with 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 Firewalk with me is 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 for me his most raw film and 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 maybe his most kind of humane. So just to give a bit of context, it kind he's he, you've you've had the two uh, series of Twin Peaks that came out in nineteen ninety two. There's a kind of revelation early on in the uh, 
uh, the, the second series, uh, which answers this perennial question that has kind of haunted the series from the first episode of who killed Laura Palmer, this person who we think is a kind of sweet homecoming queen who, who, who has been kind of bludgeoned and thrown in a river. And the series is, is this investigation about, you know, who, who, who killed her and why. And it's kind of revealed halfway through the second series because the, the producers were keen to not have that revelation basically like drag on any further. And basically when that happened, Lynch kind of got bored and, and went off and did, did other things, um, <laughs> namely Wild at Heart. And, um, and then he kind of came back for the final episode, which is kind of maybe like the best episode of the entire series in total. But it's... Um, but then he then he kind of then he decided to make fire walk with me because i mean he he's talked about how he basically loves being in that world um of twin peaks and just wanted to stay in there for a bit longer and and that's i think that's the reason why he um decided to make the third series of of twin peaks more recently and i think that the reason why he said that he liked it is not not necessarily because he likes the characters and he likes the landscape and he likes the feel but he, 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 he finds that world inspired and those people completely inspiring for him. And they, and they, and like when he thinks about those people, he gets ideas and he, and he, and, and, and he wants to tell stories about them. So Tw- Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, um, probably worth mentioning actually, because he's been name checked a few times. Um, so the film premiered in Cannes in 1992 and was booed. Um, uh, which is it, it was his it was his follow up to 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 the sort of Palm Door winning Wild at Heart. So I think that maybe compounded the disappointment somewhat. Um, and um, apparently Quentin Tarantino was at that screening in Cannes, and someone interviewed him in '92, and he and he came out and said something like, "Okay, I, I David Lynch has has failed as an artist. I'm I'm no longer engaging with his work. That film was complete trash." And uh, it's you know, it's which is kind of unexpected, really, because you kind of think that he he might you know as, as the sort of perennial trash magpie that he is, then you, you'd kind of expect him to maybe like see some see some value in this kind of extremely strange and weird and extreme film. Um, and 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 it's kind of it, it is kind of understandable because like I think you need to basically have quite a detailed knowledge of twi- the Twin Peaks and the machinations and the characters to really fully grasp Firewalk with me and what it's what is happening. Essentially, it's what you have is like a kind of 30 minute prologue, which is very, very discombobulating and, and e- confusing, even if you do know the Twin Peaks world, which is looking into a, a the death of a of a woman called Teresa Banks and two two FBI agents similar looking to to um Carl McLaughlin's Dale Cooper who are doing this investigation around around them which kind of doesn't re- it, you can see some echoes of the of the Twin Peaks story but the connections aren't entirely there yet and then for the second half well the second kind of hour and a half of the film we 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 we're basically charting the week before Laura Palmer's death and it all circles around this um uh, behind, you know, what it's basically kind of monitoring Laura Palmer, her actions, her her dream life, her her fantasies, um, her nightmares, and you know, it's it's essentially kind of it's a really I I find genuinely melancholy, upsetting movie about a, a kind of a woman dealing with this abuse that she has kind of had meted on her for years and years to the point where she is kind of inventing people, inventing reasons, invent like inventing ways of how to like deal with it uh, to the point where she is actually kind of tr- doing it to other people and becoming like selling herself off as a kind of sexual object she, performed by Cheryl Lee, who is kind of has a, a small, but super important role in Twin Peaks. She is this kind of absence a kind of ghostly presence who you kind of see in videos of her doing cheerleading and you know you in 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 sort of occasional dream sequences but she's 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 
presented as this quite ambiguous presence and ev even throughout the series even though it's hinted that she had this dark side to her the dark side that we see in and the tormented side that we see in firewalk with me is 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 you know infinitely more extreme and dark and distressing than 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 we could ever imagine and that's maybe something that is 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 a very you know when we say lynchian i think that that kind of you know that 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 kind of culmination of darkness and light existing at the same time in the same person in the same place is is that that's what it makes me think of and i think that this film definitely has that um like it's definitely a film that every time i watch it i get something more from it i kind of love it that little bit more i think it's it it, it it's maybe part of it you can even i think like women in trouble is something that that lynch comes back to again and again like especially particularly later on in in mulholland drive and inland empire and um and and, and this this film really kind of starts that like these these women sort of coming apart of the seams entering entering dream dream worlds or or these or these kind of liminal spaces and yeah it's it's um and yeah it just there's a really hor like horrifically unwatchable sequence in the middle of the film that lasts about 10 minutes where Laura and, and her friend Donna who who is also this kind of sweet pretty um schoolgirl go to the go to the do the double d bar the double diamond bar which is which is in canada everything bad in the film happens in canada it's where it's it's where it's where the strip clubs are it's where the prostitutes are it's where the drugs come from it's very yeah weirdly anti-canadian film um and um and so yeah he he uh uh, uh, uh but yeah there's this kind it's it's that they're kind of drugged and they and they and they're, they're sort of having you know there's sort of sexual things happening and screaming and drinking and leering and it's and all the while there's this kind of like blues rock really kind of slow sludgy blues rock riff in the background that kind of just make just makes it even more unbearable it's definitely kind of got a feel of of like of like the sort of thing that Gaspar Noe ends up doing like making making these kind of showing these really horrific scenes but using like soundtrack and music to really kind of pummel them home to, to just make them almost kind of unbearable and the fact that it's happening happening to this person who you kind of have got this hint of like that she's she's kind of that her, her kind of her behavior her kind of erratic behavior is that is the is the product of like years and years of of, of abuse you, you you know you it makes the the whole sequence seem even more kind of tragic but yeah no um i'll, I'll stop there but yeah it's a it's a it's a fave it's it's not one to throw on casually on a Monday evening. It's a it, it, you need to be in a particular mood to watch and rewatch it. Something that I'm interested in is for so many years it was the end point of Twin Peaks and for for fans of the series some, some couldn't look past the sort of um necessities of the production. Like Kyle McLaughlin said I'll only come back but I only want to be in half the film. So that's almost informs the restructuring and bringing in of Chris Isaac. Um, likewise, they recast Donna, don't they? Is yeah. it Donna they recast in the in Firewalk with Me. But now it's the fulcrum around which the the original Run of Twin Peaks and the Return revolves around. So I've not rewatched it since then. Have you rewatched it since then, what, David? What, the, Does the, it have different the, meanings. What, the, the, the Return. Have you rewatched Firewalk with me since the return? Yeah, yeah, no, I've rewatched it like just yesterday. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I, yeah. but but it was it's it's actually very interesting in in that there are lots of yeah, there are lots of sequences and scenes revisited in the return that feel mm -hmm. like they're explicitly from Firewalk with me. Definitely, like certainly scenes that take take place in the scenes that take place in in Twin Peaks, um, and I mean yeah. I, that the, the, it there's def I, I think definitely like twin firewalk with me has a like has a kind of gateway vibe in it in that it's kind of i mean you know the one thing that firewalk with me does that i think maybe upset the fans is that it kind of dispenses with any any of the whimsical stuff um to the point where characters who may have seemed like kind of strange and funny and quirky like like jack this this kind of corpulent bar owner is just just now seems like the kind of pinnacle of evil um 
like yeah there's there's nothing whimsical about it, it even, even like you know Leyland Palmer who is kind of revealed to to be like you know spoiler you know this <laughs> this again this <laughs> this this abusive father who 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 channels this evil you know who 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 is either channeling schizophrenic channeling this evil spirit or maybe even Laura is channeling it to to sort of shield herself from the fact that that she's that, she, that, that she's been receiving this abuse from her father um yeah it, it kind of like sets up the kind of nastiness of the of the third series which is kind of which which is less whimsical uh and 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 less soap op like less kind of like pastiche soap opery like like the like the original series and and it's more it is sort of darker and the and it, it does have humor but it's more kind of like very dry ironic humor mm-hmm. than than kind of you know that genuinely kind of silly funny stuff that lynch i think does a lot of i mean which i think is even even visible in like i mean i think that like lost highway and 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 uh, wild at heart are both like really funny films whereas this is like firewalk with me mm-hmm. is very militantly you know let's this is no funny stuff 
Lynch's whole career is fascinating. The fact that it's, it's called the straight story because the main character's called Alvin Straight, but there's a pun because after all of these labyrinthine stories from Twin <laughs> Peaks to Lost Highway, he finally tells something that's literally as straight as the road from Iowa to Wisconsin. Um, but also the fact that he's playing with, already playing with so many of the tropes we expect from him. Wild at Heart and Lost Highway both have scenes of breakneck car journeys through the night. Uh, Lost Highway both starts and ends with this, these careening shots of headlights on the highway. And the straight story instead is characterised by these breezy, slow-paced shots of a lawnmower trundling along at a snail's pace an amazing shot that is talked about in many reviews at the time it's a bit bit you know almost over talked about but where you see alvin Strait heading off into the sunset and there's an amazing crane pan up into the sky and a rising moment in the music and amazing angelo badalamenti scores with country acoustic guitars and everything and it pans back down and he's like literally moved a couple of inches because he's going so slowly rather than shooting off into the distance as you'd expect on a road movie it's just such a, a wonderful film that often gets overlooked because we just see that lynchian vibe takes us right through from lost highway straight into mulholland drive but it feels to me so important because as you said up top hannah that he's this is a man who has many facets to him and there's something that he clearly loves small town America. He really loves that greatest generation um, of the, the people who would have been in their 70s and 80s in the 90s. And it was a salute to many of his long term collaborators. Freddie Francis, who shot Elephant Man amazingly, uh, amazing cinematography in that movie, came back to shoot this. And he was 80 or something uh, doing this road movie where they literally almost like the new movie Nomadland they actually just sort of as a as a whole equipe went across the road uh the road trip together um a really wonderful movie I think um do you guys agree it's it's often overlooked sometimes in conversations about Lynch it's a great movie yeah I only watched it for the first time very recently um makes a nice double bill with um Wild at Heart of course this is two like road movies one much more fast-paced though so the other um but i was really surprised when i watched this because um the first surprising thing was that there was a whole argument about this film um with regards to disney plus when <laughs> disney plus launched it was one of the few things that they didn't have in their back catalogue and a lot of people kicked off and were like where the hell is the straight story <laughs> <laughs> um, which i hadn't realized there was this whole like um big argument because it it, it was um uh produced by uh, buena vista and yeah, they just kind of didn't really think anyone would be interested, so they didn't put it on Disney Plus, and then everyone kicked off, and they did end up adding it a few weeks later, which is where it is now. If people want to go and watch it, um, but yeah, I was I was so taken aback watching this for the first time a few months ago. Uh, I think just before Christmas, actually, so not that long ago at all. Um, by a how straightforward it is, and b just how kind of sweet and tender it is, which aren't necessary words you would use, I think, very much with David Lynch, although he has moments of that in his work i think this is the most kind of like just good people being good to each other story and there's so many lovely moments when um alvin's on the road where he meets people who um have all their own stories going on in the background but they're they're, they're just like it's defined by these moments of like decency and understanding and um there's a moment where he's kind of he's out there with his lawnmower and um the uh he's invited to stay at this um uh couple it's either a couple's house or a motel and he's just like nope I i'm good right here where i am and it's such a kind of like i think your comparison to nomadland um is kind of like really apt i think these two would work really well in a double bill because they are just about this like the kind of like almost frustrating determination of that generation of america and um citizens who were so determined to like kind of make it make it on their own and kind of saw like accepting any sort of form of help as like a an affront to their american values <laughs> but there are all these like subtle kind of ways that people help him and like try to like you know kind of um um shimmy him along on this journey and then i think like the 
one of the greatest endings in cinema maybe of all time like when he finally reaches his destination spoiler alert if you've not seen the film <laughs> he does make it um the, the the exchange he has with his brother who's played by harry dean stanton is just so like it, it's just it's just so beautiful it's just i won't spoil what they say to each other but it's just such a like a poignant and like very true exchange to anyone who's like seen old men interact with each other like i think just a very like accurate depiction of how that would go down i think yeah i it, it's a definite like a, a bit of an outlier mm-hmm. but at the same time once you kind of look down um and like go through it you're like oh no actually this makes perfect sense that this is like you know a lynch film mm-hmm. yeah when, when harry dean stanton died and, and he'd lived for another 16 17 years after this film um we it's, it was quite hard to pick the performances to you know, to 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 put in his whatever top 10 for as a tribute uh, because so many of his performances are cameo size or supporting roles he literally has like one line in this film and it just breaks your heart when it when it comes mm. to it and, and i just want to say something about richard farnsworth because this character could easily be a forrest gumpy very mannered um sean penn and i am sam type kind of performance but he has something about him. Maybe it's also the the actual genuine vulnerability he has because he was he was old. Alvin Stroke was meant to be seventy three. I think Farnsworth was in his late seventies. He was he had had a hip replacement. He had had an accident. He was also very ill at the time. So there was a natural vulnerability. But there's a he's short in stature and has this very softly spoken voice. Even though you could tell that in his day he would have been quite a strong willed man and. So he can bring out these little kernels of wisdom and little turns of phrase when he says to one of the very kind people he meets on the way, you're a kind man talking to a stubborn man. Uh, <laughs> you can you can really get on his side, and it's that lightness of touch. Um, in David Lynch's book, he says that Farnsworth originally turned it down and they were thinking of going with John Hurt, John, like mid-90s John Hurt, so would have been sort of aid- no. acting older than he is, which I don't mm. think would have... I mean, I, I love John Hurt, but wouldn't have worked at all, I don't think. Well, he was quite ill, wasn't he, when they were filming? I think, mm. and um, part part of the fact he's in a in a lawnmower as well as being in the script is is that he he I think was was unable to walk at, at some stage, and and actually his his injury had had some like hip surgeries and um, was actually in 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 not a very good state at all. So whether that you know aided his performance in any way, I don't know. But yeah, it's interesting. It's a, it's a while since I've seen the film, but it's. Um, it's kind of funny talking about it around or or in between all these other much more, I guess, as we said, classically Lynchian films. And it's almost like positively experimental, you know, mm-hmm. by comparison. And um, yeah, I just think it's, it's a film that now that he's at this kind of age, um, Lynch, I'd love to see him go back and make something like this again. Because um, I, I think it really shows what, what an amazing um, craftsman he is. And, and, you know, I mean, Robert Zemeckis could never make a David Lynch film, but David Lynch could make a Robert Zemeckis film. I I, I agree with you there. I I I get. A, I always think with the straight story that it's like it's a really good example of what a kind of natural, intuitive filmmaker he is. Like he just he just kind of whisks a bunch of scenes up. Each one is good mm. and intriguing and different and brings some kind of new dynamic to the brew. And but it's never there's never a sense of like oh, there's this big narrative unfolding and it's all connected and there's all these little things that kind of <laughs> bolt together. And yet it always just feels like this kind of, you know, you, you never feel like you're kind of just on this random ambling journey. You know, it's like, it it feels like you, there there is like purpose to everything. Uh, I, I always find with this film that it's just like every 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 interaction he has with everyone is is, is just delightful. So, Adam, would you like to bring us home with your pick? Yeah, it's maybe the most obvious one. Um, but Mulholland Drive is a film that I think I've I've maybe seen more than any other of Lynch's. Actually, most recently, um, might have been the year before last, I think there was a 4K re-release and I went to see it. Um, went to see it at the Picture House Central, I think. Um, quite a kind of late night showing. Um, took my missus along and she'd never she'd never seen it before so she she's quite familiar with a lot of other Lynch but that that was one she hadn't ever sat down to and so it was really nice actually watching it with her for the first time and having those discussions about the film afterwards and I'd, I'd also seen it at the Prince Charles I think on 35 mil back in the day 
and I've like watched the the DVD and watched it online, you know, a bunch of times. And yeah, it's just one of those films that every time I revisit it, there's something, there's something new that I discover about it, or something that I I appreciate I maybe didn't appreciate as much, you know, the the last time. And it's obviously um, seen as this amazing, um, well, seen as, as as one of the kind of defining films of the current century. And I think the BBC. Uh, three or four years ago now, maybe they 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 did a kind of critics poll of the best films of the twenty first century, and this came out as number one. But I think there's an argument to be said that it's actually the last really great film of the twentieth century, and I think a lot of what Lynch is doing in this film is is kind of harking back to, you know, this kind of old mode of Hollywood storytelling. There's a lot of comparisons that have been made to things like Sunset Boulevard, famous Billy Wilder film, and you know, I think. Lynch is very much a, a kind of um, student of people like Wilder, you know, and what he's doing, I think, in Mulholland Drive is tapping into a lot of the lore and a lot of the mythology that was kind of coming out of Hollywood at that time and that subsequently has now been kind of put through this new lens and new filter by people like Lynch. And I guess someone like Quentin Tarantino, who we've mentioned a bit, albeit more populist in his kind of delivery. I think he, he does something quite similar as well a lot, a lot of the time, um, especially with um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But yeah, I think Mulholland Drive is just one of those films that's... It, it doesn't feel like someone sat down and wrote the script and they cast it and got a load of people together and filmed it. It, it, it just feels like this thing that emerged already fully formed, right? And there's just so much going on, there's so much to it. Um, and I think one of the one of the things David was saying about earlier and, and the kind of um, recurring or overarching themes of Lynch's work and, and, and looking at kind of trauma and, you know, especially from, from a kind of female perspective. I think this is one of those films that people often talk about in terms of it being one of his most kind of oblique works and it's and it's very cryptic and it's this kind of strange puzzle to be solved. Um, but I think if you kind of work backwards from it chronologically, I guess starting at the end where it's sort of revealed, however you want to read it, that, you know, Naomi Watts' character is kind of... A lot of what we've seen up to this point is has been a kind of figment of her fractured kind of dream state. Um, it becomes this very, very sad story, I think, and, and, a, and a really, you know... Just a... Yeah, just a, a, a really... Um, yeah, quite bleak outlook, I think, on, on this idea of Hollywood as, you know, I, th- I think what he's doing here basically is kind of deconstructing or breaking apart this this myth of Hollywood as this kind of dream factory, right? And Naomi Watts' character, you know, people talk about it as a film about broken dreams, but I think what Lynch is interested in is the point past that where the dream has become this really, like, putrefied, really toxic, really, like... Um, you know, malicious thing um, that's actually infected her to the point that she's kind of having to create all these fantasies. And I think my my favourite scene from the film, obviously there's all these like red herrings and non sequiturs and kind of weird scenes that stand on their own. But I think my favourite scene is, um, is, is the kind of boardroom scene with Justin Theroux's kind of hapless director and the film's producers and uh and and the kind of mafia boss that he meets which i think when you when you kind of watch it and and you go back chronologically through the film it kind of feels like it must it can only be a product of Naomi Watts's imagination right like this this idea that she's um ultimately what wasn't cast in this film like just as the uh the amazing scene where she goes and and gives that it's almost like too good to be true performance in the casting and you kind of realize that maybe well maybe that's not how it went down and she didn't get the role and she's kind of dreamt up this scenario to explain why she was kind of shunned for this role but yeah I just think the way the way that scene is constructed and delivered I mean it it is just like you're kind of on the edge of your seat and then the payoff with the with the mafia boss being served this espresso and kind of like the, the I think it, I think it's actually um Angelo Badalamente mm. is is was cast as that character, and he kind of, he kind of doesn't really say a lot, but he yeah his his performance and that little delivery of him like spitting out the espresso, 
I mean, it is very, very funny. I think that's maybe something we haven't talked about all that much is like Lynch is kind of seen as this quite, not not overly serious, but quite kind of like, you know, you're meant to meet him on this on this quite intellectual level, um, which is, I think, fair and true of a lot of a lot of his work. But yeah, I just think there's 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 so much humour in his films as well. Um, and maybe maybe less so in Holland Drive than some other films, but moments like the espresso scene just kind of remind you how how playful he can be, and also just a kind of master of of the form. I mean, he is completely in control of every single you know minuscule detail of that scene, and it is just like so perfectly composed and delivered. I remember when the DVD came out, it came with a little inlay with clues on how to unravel the mystery that just made the mystery more mysterious. <laughs> it didn't help at but all. I think that's the point, right? I mean, it's like all the stuff with the, the blue box and all the Club Silencio stuff. It's kind of just, you know, there's clues there or whatever to the central mystery. But um, I think actually the, the narrative is a lot more kind of simple than, than all that. And there's all this stuff which is just there to kind of further... Um, you know, just yeah, it's just he's just kind of layering up this this intrigue and this mystique around the film, which is just a very you know that's very much a kind of Lynch trademark. I think that going back to this idea of like um, unlocking the mystery, I think is something that people talk about a lot with Lynch, and you know all the theories around Twin Peaks and when the return was on, all the kind of like constant like it felt like it never ended the like speculation. Um, I think that one of the kind of things I like most about Lynch as a person is how like willing he is to play into this and he's like oh you never know uh, which I really <laughs> like that I think totally speaks to that like playful side of him which uh, Adam's mentioned in his sense of humor and I think that um this is something a lot of his like stars have picked up on and said in interviews they've said kind of like look you know it can mean whatever you want it to mean it's like Lynch isn't playing fast and loose with that he um is quite happy for you to have your own interpretations of his work and as a um as a filmmaker and as an artist he seems very like responsive to things meaning as little or as much as you want them to there's a wonderful like meme which comes up on uh, twitter quite a lot of him saying believe it or not lost highlight lost highway is my most spiritual film mm-hmm. and the interviewer says elaborate on that and he says no, <laughs> it's like my favorite kind of like I have many favorite lynchisms. I think he, you know, he has a wonderful kind of like um, sense of humor about his own work. But yeah, I, I think that especially with Mulholland Drive, which I still am not entirely sure I understand, it, it's um, one of the things I like most about him. As someone who's quite like I, I, I like understanding things and I like um, knowing where I am with filmmakers. I am like constantly amazed at my capacity for bullshit with david lynch i'm like yeah yeah baby take me on this journey david like i I, i'm totally here for it i i really think that he is very um his honesty with how kind of like little you're going to understand is really refreshing in a filmmaker yeah i think that's almost you know a very roundabout way of kind of coming back to your thing about how you felt it was gatekept by these intellectual film bros who felt like they had to put their theories on all of this when really surely those gates should Mm. be thrown open because they're such sensory emotional dreamlike nightmarish experiences that you can take whichever way you want surely and like my mom isn't going to get the same thing out of a david lynch film that i am like she's not watching the elephant man and like looking for like the kind of like Mm, the deeper meaning she's just like wow this is a really sad story with an amazing performance by anthony hopkins <laughs> and i love the idea that like you can come to david lynch from a like a film bro point of view or like a a, a hardcore academic point of view or you can come to it from kind of like a very casual you know just a person who just watches movies point of view and have a totally different like understanding of the film and outlook on the film and I think that's that's really refreshing and we need more filmmakers like that, even though getting more filmmakers like David Lynch seems like quite a big ask. Well, I think one, one interesting thing and one thing you can, you know, for, for whatever reading you, there is available in Mulholland Drive and whatever you want to, however you want to interpret it, you, you can discern certain things from it that I think speak to his own experiences in the industry. And like actually that espresso scene for me is quite a kind of, you know, thinly veiled jab at that kind of stuffy boardroom executive level meeting that must happen, and I'm sure he's been in many. And and obviously, famously, Mulholland Drive was was 
was intended as a kind of TV series and um, they, they shot this pilot which ABC basically like rejected and, and, it, and it was kind of then upon Lynch to, to, to sort of flesh out the ending and, and salvage it and turn it into this amazing film. And so I think, you know, there's, there's a lot in there about his, yeah, his own experiences and his own, his own kind of views towards, towards Hollywood and the, and the whole system. Um, and, and kind of taken, I, I guess, this is sort of loose LA trilogy that it forms. And it's, it's sort of the middle film, right, with um, Lost Highway and Inland Empire. Um, and I think all, all of those films, if you look at it from the point of view of like what, what it tells you about, you know, the film industry and kind of Lynch's um, position and role within it and, and, the, and the position and role of filmmakers like Lynch within it. Um, it's, and, and, and especially now in hindsight, kind of looking at what Hollywood looks like now and what the state of the industry is. I think it's quite, yeah, it's quite revealing. So listeners, there you have it for very personal recommendations from the filmography of David Lynch and lots of roots into his other work beyond that. Um, if you've watched these films or if you're going to watch these films, if you have a big theory about what it all means or just about David Lynch's films in general, let us know at the usual channels at LWLies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email or at the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. David, Adam, Hannah, thank you so much for talking Lynch with me today. I'm Michael Leader and you'll hear again from us soon. 